Welcome to the Westminster Chapel podcast. For more information and to support our mission to London and beyond, please visit westminsterchapel.org.uk. Ah, happy new year. Good to see people. Welcome if uh, this is your first time with us. My name's Andy. Um, I'm really excited for where we're at, what we're going to be starting, how we're beginning this year. Um, We're going to dive straight into the book of Acts. Uh, We've been trailering this for a couple of weeks, um, and hopefully you will get to know it. You'll get to know it quite well. So there we are. Let me just check my slides. There we go. So, actually, just before that, I had a reflection. In Psalm 48, it says, we meditate on God's unfailing love. And then... In the prayer meeting just before this, there was a line that just captivated me. It said about people who are following gods, that they flourish like palm trees, like cedars in Lebanon, these glorious trees. And then there's this almost an image of a cross-section of a tree. And it says, they, they bear fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green And I was thinking, I wonder what that means. It's a lovely image, isn't it? Being full of sap, this sort of cross-section of a tree with all that oozy goodness on the inside. And then I flip forward to 2 Corinthians. And it says this about those who follow Christ. We do not lose heart. Though our outer self might be wasting away, our inner selves are being renewed day by day. And just before that, it says, we who live are always given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus would be manifested in our mortal bodies. Why don't we pray? And as you pray, just meditate. Think about perhaps the image of this church, like a tree being, a cross-section being cut and seeing the sap Lord, we ask for the Spirit of God, this life of Christ, a life that is so full of heavenly nutrients, of goodness, of love, of forgiveness, of mercy, of compassion, seeping into every tiny little part of us through the conversations that we have with one another, through the relationships that are forming maybe even just today, through those who are serving you passionately. And we thank you so much for all of our kids' workers and everyone serving the kids now and for the kids as well. And we pray that this life of Christ would not just be present in this room, but would be flowing through this whole church. And as all of us, from the youngest to the oldest, engage with your word, which is a word of life, Lord, help us to be so captivated by you and be transformed in our inner selves from one degree of glory to another. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, let's dive into our Bible reading for today. We're starting, like I say, at the book of Acts. Um, which is this amazing story, and we're, we're going to be spending quite a long time in this, so I'm not going to give you every detail about it today, but I think today's message really is actually, will you immerse yourself in this story? 
So we read, actually, funnily enough, I'm going to need to read that one. So let's read it together. This is Luke writing. He says, in my former book, Theophilus, I wrote, all about, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of heaven, or kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, that's John the Baptist, with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or the dates that the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be witnesses, my witnesses, in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After this, after he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going. When suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you've seen him go into heaven. Let's just read those words once again at the end. Why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven heaven. Now, I know that some of you in this room know this experience of saying goodbye to someone that you truly love. Now, that may be parents sending their kids off to university, and it may be a sigh of relief, to be honest. I don't know. Um, I've only been the child going off to university at that point. But there, there must have been a pang, a feeling, a deep feeling of saying goodbye to someone that you so love. There, I know this feeling from having my wife, uh, Shan, worked in Malaysia for a few years, well, for a year while we were dating and we were engaged and saying goodbye at the airport and seeing them sort of walk down the passageway and then turn off and you can't see them anymore. There is a deep sense of loss in some way, even though you know that they will return and um, come back at some point. But even the feeling of having said goodbye to a loved one, someone that you have loved, who has loved you, and they have passed away, and that deep sense of loss that you feel. Now, I, I imagine it was even more so for these guys, because Jesus' disciples had said goodbye to him when he died on a cross, when he was executed publicly, 
they had put so much hope in him and they had met a man, not only that they loved so much, but a man who loved them more than anyone, anything they had ever comprehended. This man so loved them and they said goodbye to him when he died on a cross and they lost hope. And then he was brought back to them and they recovered that relationship in some way and he was around, as it says, for 40 days. And you can imagine them almost getting used to Jesus is back. He's back in my life. I have him around. I can wake up and I know he'll be there. And then again, they're looking up into the sky. And they've seen him go. And they're saying goodbye once again. Goodbye to a man who loved them more than anyone can comprehend. But, and I think this is where the, these two men, were they angels? Was it Elijah and Moses? Who knows? But these men say to the disciples what they need to hear. He will return. He will come back. It's written in one of Paul's letters in 2 Thessalonians. When he returns, when Jesus comes back, he will be glorified and everyone will be marveling at him. Our, not only will our knees bow, but our jaws will drop at the wonder and the glory of Jesus returning to the earth and everything that will come with him, all of heavenly glory. So we will see him again. And the disciples, I think, clung to that truth. They're standing there looking up. I imagine if there, any of them were like me as well, they're looking out the corner of their eye to see who moves first because no one quite knows what to do. Thankfully, these two men give them this word of reassurance and then re-clarify the instruction. Look, you know what you've got to do. It's basic. It's simple. Go to Jerusalem. You've been with him for these days. Now you've got something to do. It's clear. Go to Jerusalem. That's kind of going to be the message for you today, not literally, but you're going to understand, hopefully, going to Jerusalem, what that means. Because I wonder how it felt for them, for the disciples, being told to go to Jerusalem. Because if you think about it, that would have been a risky journey for these disciples. We need to remember when we're reading the book of Acts as it says in that first verse, Luke says, In my first book, O Theophilus, making a reference to the previous book that he had just written, which, if you're a publisher, that's a clever idea. You always advertise your previous book so people go away and buy it. He is making reference to the story that I began to tell you in Luke's gospel. And now we're in Acts. And a major key for reading Acts is knowing Luke's gospel. So if, if you are looking for a reading plan to start the year, if you want to read the Bible, why not start in the book of Luke? Get familiar with it, and it will really help you in the book of Acts. So Luke, the writer of this, is wanting us to think back to his original gospel and all that Jesus began to do and teach in that letter. And what's the most recent thing that happened in Jerusalem? Well, it was this man was executed publicly by the authorities 
in Jerusalem. And now he's sending his group of disciples back into that environment, right into the hot seat, right into the fire. And not only that, but I think if you start to read Luke's gospel, um, and maybe it was just because I was listening to the band Radiohead when I was writing this sermon, so I'm a bit morbid and feeling a bit miserable, but I was looking at Luke's gospel through the lens of what had Jesus said about Jerusalem? What had he predicted about this city, about what was going on there and what would go on? And actually, the verdict is not good. They would have imagined or felt that they were walking into a burning building, going to Jerusalem, walking down the hill from the Mount of Olives and then up again into the city. And I'll just give you a rundown of the kinds of things that Jesus said about the nation of Israel and the city Jerusalem and the temple itself during Luke's gospel. First of all, at the very beginning, early on in Jesus' ministry, there are demons everywhere. Now, where did demons come from? We don't have many references to demons being present and the demonic and impure spirits in the Old Testament. But when Jesus starts walking around the Holy Land, the, the land that was meant to be where God's presence was and there was meant to be cleanness and flourishing, there are demons even in the synagogue. Jesus is casting out demons from people within the synagogues, within the places where people would worship. And actually, in another gospel, Matthew's gospel, Jesus tells a sort of, uses imagery to describe what might happen. He says, if you cast out a demon and it's left empty, but then nothing gets done about it and, and nothing pure gets put in instead... Many more demons will return and make the state of this place even worse than it was at the beginning. And then Jesus says, that is how it will be for this generation if they don't repent. Jesus has come into their synagogues and into different environments and cast out demons, giving them an opportunity to repent and be full of the kingdom of God and full of God's life. But if they don't turn and repent... He's saying it is going to be devastating for this generation. He carries on in Luke chapter 10. He sends out 72 disciples round the region to go into different towns to speak about the kingdom of God. The fact that the long-awaited king that the nation has been waiting for has arrived and is establishing his kingdom. And he says to them, if the cities welcome you, great, make your peace there. But if the towns and the cities reject you, then what should you do? You should wipe the dust off your feet and say, the kingdom of God came near. But then Jesus says about those towns, and this is within Israel of the time, it would be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for those towns. And if you know the story from Genesis the town of Sodom was firebombed. It was destroyed because of their iniquity and their sin and their rejection of God. And Jesus is saying about the towns in that area, it is going to be worse for them 
if they continue to reject the kingdom of God. He goes on, he has one very fiery encounter with some of the religious leaders of the day who kind of presided, they ruled over Jerusalem and and the religious institutions around the area. He has this fiery back and forth, and then he says, the blood of all of the prophets is going to be charged against this generation. Sadly, God's people had been famous for killing God's prophets, or the people who claimed to be God's people at least. They had rejected prophet after prophet. We hear about it through the Old Testament. They didn't like hearing what God had to say. He disrupts things. And so they rejected that. And Jesus says to the generation that he is facing, all of the blood and all of the guilt of those prophets is coming down on this generation. He delivers from very hard truth because he knows something's going to happen. When he comes and preaches, he knows that he is not bringing a message that everyone is going to just nod and agree to. You know, there's many preachers, secular preachers out in the world at the moment who will just say, oh, what we need is just peace and love with no definition. Now, no one's going to disagree with that. Even the most extreme right-wing or left-wing groups will say, yeah, that would be nice. You can bring some empty message to the world. Jesus knew that he wasn't bringing an empty message to the world. In fact, he knew that the message he brought was going to divide families. That a mother might believe this, but the father would reject it. Brothers might believe it, but then be cast out, or sons would be cast out of their families for, for, for believing this stuff, and they would end up homeless. He knew that this was going to be happening. He says, I came to bring fire and judgment, the sword and division. At one point, he turns to a crowd and he says to them, look, you're quite good at, you know that phrase, red sky at night, shepherd's delight, red sky in the morning, shepherd's warning. You know that you can look at the sky and the clouds and they predict what the weather's going to be like. You're quite good at that but why do you not have any clue as to what's going to happen to this nation? How can you not see the signs and the warning signs of this crumbling city and the way the religious institutions are going so horribly wrong? How can you not predict that? Jesus says this to a crowd in Luke 12, 56. He then goes on to use a fig tree as a symbol for Jerusalem. There's a fig tree. He uses a fig tree as a sort of illustration, and he says, look, if it bears fruit in the next year, great. But if it does not bear fruit in this coming year, it will be cut down. And he's making a reference to Jerusalem, and in particular, the temple of the time. His parting message to Jerusalem, he he sort of was in and out of the region because he spent most of his time up in the north of Israel. But he would come down to Jerusalem and then would go back. And his final depart, when when he left Jerusalem for the last time, he doesn't say, oh, I can't wait till I come back. He gives a tragic lament about how desolated and how empty the city was in terms of its worship of God and its desire to, uh, to glorify God, how empty and unsatisfying the temple was. 
And then on his return, we're told that he weeps over Jerusalem. He says, the days will come when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on it every side and tear you to the ground. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Again, it's that idea they can't even predict that this is going to happen to them. He warns that the stone rejected by the builders will become the cornerstone that's going to fall and crush them. Now, this is picking up Old Testament language, but it's also just how you build a building. They knew that you should have a cornerstone and you build the structure based on that cornerstone. But he's saying that the people of the day, the religious leaders of the day, had decided to build their own building and claim that this was the building where God's presence would be. But they'd left this stone, this cornerstone, which was meant to be the very foundation of the whole thing. They kicked it aside and said, we don't need that. We'll build our own building. And Jesus is saying, I am going to build a building. I am going to be the cornerstone. And this building is going to expand and fill the world. Your building is going to come crashing down because you have rejected me. And then finally, if you're not miserable enough, he says, he tells his disciples directly, when you see Jerusalem in the future, surrounded by armies, you should flee because its destruction has come near. The suffering in these days of vengeance will be immense. Now we know from later looking back, that much of this came true in 70 AD. Uh, 70 AD, so 40 years-ish after this, the Roman army finally did come in and destroy Jerusalem and the temple and bring it crashing to the ground. But at the time, they don't quite know this. They don't know what's going to happen. They know with... they've. Surely, as they're walking down towards Jerusalem, they're remembering a lot of what Jesus has said about this place and thinking, do we want to go back there? Do we want to start something there? This is the place that executed our leader, and he said awful things about what's going to happen here. So how are they feeling? All sorts of tensions, but there's another interesting tension there, because what was the question that they asked him? If you go back to Luke's gospel, Luke 24, there's a story of Jesus walking with two very demoralized disciples who think that he's dead and gone. And, and what they say to him is interesting. They say, we had hoped that he was the one that was going to redeem Israel, free Israel from its captivity, its slavery to sin. It's, it, it, it's, it's been under this subjugation from the Romans. It's under the power of sin, it, it feels like we're captives. We had hoped that this guy, Jesus, would, become, would be the Messiah guy who would save us from all that. But he's died. But then we get this question after Jesus has risen from the dead. And they're thinking, Whew, he's got a bit more power now. Will you now, verse 6, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? It's a really interesting question. There's all sorts of opinions on it. 
The word restore, the main use of that in the Gospels is when Jesus cures someone's arm, when he heals them, when they're ill, when they're sick, when there's something wrong with them, he restores them. It's the same word. And now they're asking, are you going to cure Israel right now? Are you going to save it? Are you going to bring it back? And Jesus gives a very interesting answer to that question. Sorry, I do have... There you go. Those are the two references. And they're asking this because, and I'll get onto this in a little bit, but they're asking this because there's so many promises in the Old Testament about how God will restore the fortune of Israel and how he will bring them up into the status that they used to have and how he will take them from the previous glories that they once had into an even greater glory. He would restore the nation and restore it to this powerhouse that it used to be. And they're expecting that. But then they've heard this Jesus give such condemning words about the nation and what's going to happen. And I think they're trying to tie these things together. And they're asking the question, when is it going to happen? Which is a question of faith. They really believe that God's promises are true. And I think we can learn from that. What God has said will come true. They're asking the question, when? They're perhaps thinking that Jesus himself is going to walk down into Jerusalem and do the whole thing. And he answers with more of a how. He says, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons, but he doesn't tell them that it's a terrible question. He doesn't say that it's the wrong thing to ask. But he flips the whole situation around, I think, and says, actually, you're going to discover that God does far more than you can even think or imagine. Because God's plans are bigger than your expectations. And God is going to do something more glorious than you have ever experienced. He is going to take this further and wider than simply the boundaries of Israel as they were. God is going to do something marvelous in your midst. And I love what Doreen shared with us. Let's believe God is continuing to do more marvelously, more wonderfully, more glorifying things for his name than we imagine. So there's kind of, the book of Acts really leaves this question hanging. It's, it sets the scene beautifully. How is this going to happen? How is God going to fulfill his promises? And the brilliant writing of the book of Acts is he doesn't answer that question straight away. You have to keep reading. And we're going to be doing that as a church, I imagine maybe for three to five years, reading through the book of Acts. We're going to do season by season. We will give people a break. Don't worry. We will take different sort of avenues into different things. After Easter, we're going to look at what it means for Jesus to have ascended into heaven. That's why I'm not giving it much attention here. So what it means for the ascension, Jesus being king, where is he right now and what's he up to, kind of thing. But we're going to be going through the book of Acts slowly so that we can, together, immerse ourselves in the story. Because that's the way, Luke doesn't just answer all the questions, bullet point list, there you go, that's enough. He tells us a story. 
And stories are what grip our hearts. Stories are what we start to live into. And that's the invitation here. So we've got this incredible, incredible story that we're being invited into. But I want you to hear this, that God's plan is still on track. That is the emphasis, I think, right at the beginning. God's plan is still on track. And I get that from two different things. Firstly, the fact that Jesus has gone missing. That is important. I think, like I said, we will get to the ascension, what it means that Jesus has ascended into heaven and why he needed to be surrounded by clouds and what all of that imagery was about. We'll get to that. But there is a mention in verses 10 and 11, four times it's the word heaven is used. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and, and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Now, unless they've just can't think of anything else to say, I think they're trying to give us a clue here of where Jesus is right now. He is in heaven. Why is that important? That is not Jesus skiving off the mission, saying, right, I don't fancy going back to Jerusalem. I'm going to leave them to it. This, Patrick Schreiner has written a fantastic commentary on Acts and a book on the, the Ascension. And he says this, the Ascension is the crowning and victory moment of the gospel. The gospel message is that there is a king of God and he is on the throne now. So Schreiner says it was necessary. It was the necessary next step in order for the spirit to be sent and for Jesus to be in a position to fully restore Israel and fulfill God's plans. Jesus says in John's gospel, it is better for you that I go away. And he wasn't kidding. It is so that he can pull all of the levers in the universe from his heavenly throne. Whereas on earth, he was limited to his physical capacity in some way. But from his seat, from his throne in heaven, he is now in the control center of everything. That's why it's good news that Jesus has gone up into heaven. And that is why it is a sign that God's plan is still on track. But the second thing is this. He sends the disciples to Jerusalem. He doesn't send them home. I've sometimes heard... Um, teaching on evangelism, and it says we need to evangelize, which is sharing the good news of Jesus. We start with Jerusalem, which is where we live, and then we go to Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. Jerusalem wasn't where any of them lived. We hear in uh, the Pentecost situation, in the next chapter, they're all Galileans. They're from the northern parts of Israel. That would be like telling someone from Hull or Newcastle, that they're from London. They would not like that. They don't want to be told that they're a southerner. This is not home for them. This is the center of God's plan. Sorry, those references to Hull and Newcastle, to anyone who's not from the UK, maybe that didn't make any sense. Um, I won't go. Uh, God had always promised in the prophets, Micah, Zechariah, Jeremiah, in the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established. The mountain is where Jerusalem was built on, as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills. Zechariah, I will, 
I will return to Zion and dwell in Jerusalem. And then Jerusalem will be called the faithful city. And the mountain of the Lord Almighty will be called the holy mountain. At that time, he says in Jeremiah, people will call Jerusalem the throne of the Lord. And all the nations will gather in Jerusalem to honor the name of the Lord. Now, there is something fascinating going on when Jesus sends his people to Jerusalem. He's saying, yes, I've said all of that about the city and the current religious institutions, that they will, if they don't repent, endure great suffering and destruction. But I still plan to fulfill my plans in Jerusalem. And by the way, in just 10 days' time, thousands of Jews who've been scattered amongst the nations are going to be arriving there for an annual festival. Just say it. Can you see God's incredible plan at work? He knows that there is going to be a nuclear explosion from the very heart of Jerusalem because he has promised that and he's always said that his glory will fill the entire earth from the city of Jerusalem. And just at this point, he's gathering people from all over the nations to be there And he's saying to his small group of disciples, you are going to be the reactor core for this explosion to the nations. So be in Jerusalem. Go there and wait. Next week, we will look at what they were doing as they were waiting. But I just want you to see, the whole point of this is saying God's plan is still on track. Despite the state of the nation at the time, Despite the idolatry, despite the fact that the majority of people have turned away from the true God to worship their own versions of God, God's plan was still on track. He wasn't hamstrung by their lack of belief. He was working through this small group, and we're going to see, as we work through the book of Acts, what God can do through a smallish group of people to reach the nations and the world. Now, I feel like you deserve a very cute video to watch. To be. To be. I'll give you context. Brian Cox on the right is the famous actor who was in Succession. He's great. Uh, I was listening to a podcast where he was talking about um, acting as a thing. And he was saying that he once gave a masterclass with this boy, Theo. And uh, if you really want to know about acting, you should watch this interaction. Because he trains so many young sort of adult actors to act. And it's all about learning the lines and getting it perfect and being able to cross all the T's and dot the I's. And it's about learning your lines uh, and, and just doing it by rote almost. Um, And there's so many insecurities going on, and they need to do it perfectly. And he says, if you want to learn to act, learn from this little boy. To be. To be. To be. Or not to be. Or not to be. Okay. To be or not to be. Say it. To be. Or not to be. Or not to be. That is the question. That is the question. Yeah. I know it's... 
Say, say to be or not to be. That is the question. Yeah, it is. That is the question. Can you say that is the question? That's right. So you go to be, to be, or not to be, or not to be. That is the question. That's the question. Yes. That's good. That's good. See, we can learn the story or we can live the story. What Theo beautifully demonstrates is the ability to actually interact with the story. What a grown-up actor is preoccupied with is, I need to learn the lines, I need to get it perfect, I need to make it sound right. Theo was just immersed in the story so that he actually responds, yes, that is the question. He's living in the story. He's not just learning the story. I want to submit that this could be something for us to embrace as we go through the book of Acts. It is not going to be about just learning the story, just learning by rote, just academically approaching this. But actually, for the newest Christian, for those who are just starting to follow Jesus, you can be like the Theo. And for those who've been around Christianity for longer, we need to be more like that. Where actually, when something gets said, we interact with it. We don't just learn it. We don't just then repeat it and regurgitate it. We respond. We interact. We're living in the story of this. I'll give you an example. We can often talk about the idea of, in 2024, I want to submit my plans to God. Can I suggest that actually you should submit yourself to God's plans? Because if you just submit your plans to God and ask him to bless them, then what God will do in your life is only ever your size. It's based on your plans. God, I want to do this. Will you bless it? Often we take blessing as silence or silence as blessing. I've prayed about it. God didn't say no, so I'm going to do it. He's blessed my plans. Why don't we interact more with the story and actually we start to get to know the story that we are meant to be part of and we live in it. We respond to it. It's more fluid. It's more natural. I want us to immerse ourselves in the story of Acts and to discover something that is so much bigger than you are, than you and I. That's where meaning comes. I'm going to show a video next week about the meaning crisis in especially the Western world at the moment. But this is where meaning is found when you are fully immersed in a story that is so much bigger than you, that will go on beyond your life that has so much impact, not just in your locality, but the world, why not be part of that rather than submit your plans to God? And my final question really is this. Are you going to go to Jerusalem or are you going to go home? Will you go to Jerusalem or will you go to Galilee? That was the decision that these disciples had to make. Now that Jesus is gone, maybe he's looking the other way. Maybe he's preoccupied with heavenly things. Now I can sneak home to Galilee. Because I could sneak home and live a very blessed life. I've just spent an awful amount of time with the greatest man who's ever lived. 
I've learned all of his lessons. I've heard his teaching. I could go home and tell story after story until I die of how I spent time with Jesus. I could be going in around Galilee and becoming the wise sage who knows the sayings of Jesus. I could probably experience all sorts of blessings in my life that I could count up to God and say, thank you, God. I can experience the common grace of God. We as a family went to the, uh, the lights at Kew Gardens yesterday, and we were slightly worried about where we were going to park, and we were having all sorts of debates about on the road round where, whether, whether there will be space on the park, and we're looking at Google images of the parking signs to see whether they say that we could park at that time. And then we drive around the corner, and just by the gates, there is a churchyard with the gate open and one space available. And I'm like, well, that's clearly because I'm a pastor in a church. God has just blessed me enormously. Come on, let's not shrink God's blessings down to such ridiculous things. That is the common grace of God, and I'm so grateful that we got a parking space. And I'll be honest, I didn't pay the optional fee because I couldn't figure out how to. Let me read you this. I the Open Doors newsletter for, um, that you can just sign up to for free. They send you every couple of months a prayer list and sort of a little magazine. From this individual, after becoming a Christian and sensing a call to church leadership, Salah and a friend regularly evangelized outside their local mosque. They became known as the crazy guys. Such was their boldness. In Yemen, it's illegal to convert from Islam to Christianity, and accusations of apostasy can lead to the death penalty. Wherever Saleh went, he told Yemenis about Jesus, including at a refugee camp in a nearby country, after fleeing because of war. I became known as the person who knows Jesus, says Saleh. There were deep conversations and many people came to know Christ. Yemen remained on Salah's heart, leading to him creating a house church network when he returned. With 70% of believers in Yemen unable to gather, it's meeting a huge need, but it's costly. And there's the bit. If we sit at home and do nothing, we would be safe and blessed, and I'm sure full of things that he could give thanks for. But what kind of Christians would we be if we weren't risking our life to others, for others to know life. I'll say it again. If we sit at home and do nothing, we would be safe. But what kind of Christians would we be if we weren't risking our life for others to know life? That's the decision of Galilee or Jerusalem. You could stick up Bible verses all around your house so that you can memorize them and enjoy them, and that would be a good start. But what about using your house as a hub for others so that they could experience the hospitality of God. It's all right to have your name on a WhatsApp list for a life group in this church, but what about being the person in the life group that prays most for everyone else in that group and cares for them and reaches out to them? It's good to come to church, sit on a seat and leave. It would be incredible to be giving and serving to the mission of the church. I suppose what I'm asking is just make a decision at the start of the year. Jerusalem, where we're not guaranteed comfort, we're not guaranteed safety, 
we're, we're guaranteed excitement and we're guaranteed risk. We're guaranteed a story to live into or Galilee, the place that you know, the place of comfort and safety, the place of routine. Which decision will you make? That's the question I think from this book of Acts. As Jesus ascends, takes his rightful place on the throne of heaven, having died for the sins of his people, been risen from the grave with resurrection power, now seated and ready to expand his kingdom to the entire earth through the work of the Spirit in his people. Do his disciples just go home and hear about it in the news? Or do they go and become center of God's story? I think that's our decision as well. We're going to get into it more as we carry on through the book of Acts. If you get bored, come and tell me, and I don't know what I'll do. Why don't we pray? If the band can come and let's, let's worship, just from that Psalm 48. Why don't we stand and... Uh, It says at the end of the psalm, within your temple, and now we understand, within your living temple, O God, we meditate on your unfailing love. Like your name, O God, your praise reaches to the ends of the earth. In this room, Lord, you have gathered people from every end of the earth together. Your right hand is filled with righteousness. Mount Zion rejoices. The villages of Judah are glad because of your judgments. Now, to us, walk about Zion. Walk about the living church, the, the, the Zion of God, the mountain of God. Go around her, count her towers, consider well her ramparts. View her citadels so that you may tell of them to the next generation. For this God is our God forever and ever, and he will be our guide even to the end. Lord, we submit ourselves to your guidance and to your plans and to your purposes as a church that you would be the one that takes us to the ends of the earth where necessary, whatever that means. Lord, fill us, we pray, with your spirit. In Jesus' name. listening to sermon audio from Westminster Chapel. If you'd like to partner with us in making disciples and sharing the gospel, please consider making a one-off or regular donation. Visit westminsterchapel.org.uk forward slash giving to find out how.